The following audio comes from the National Disciple Making Forum by Discipleship.org. The theme was relationships, and Dr. Marcus DiCarvalho from Untangling Addiction led a track called Untangling Addiction, Stronger Through Jesus-Styled Discipleship. Dr. Marcus DiCarvalho, or Dr. D for short, has written for Discipleship.org a great ebook about overcoming addiction through discipleship. As a medical doctor and disciple of Jesus, he brings a unique approach to this topic. You can download this book for free at discipleship.org slash addiction. Now for today's track session. My name is Marcus DiCarvalho. The title of today's talk is Untangling Addiction. I recently put out a book called Untangling Addiction published by discipleship.org, which you can go on their website and download for free. Uh, So I really encourage you, everything that we're going to talk about All the details, the slides, everything that's there will be in that book for you. The book is designed for ministry leaders, members, Christians, or people who are just stuck in their addiction and want insight, understanding, and help, and an understanding of hope. Just a few credentials. I am a medical doctor. I'm board certified with the American Board of Psychiatry and Neurology. I specialize in addiction medicine. I also own uh, four uh, psychiatric practices where we provide psychiatric care, addiction care. We also use MRI technology to map your brain, find areas that are associated with depression, addiction, anxiety, even obsessive compulsive disorder, and use the energy of the MRI to treat. It's a paradigm shift in psychiatric and addiction treatment. I'm also really proud of Untangle Addiction. We're going to be launching this website in January, which will be totally devoted to education, awareness, videos, podcasts, completely free. If you text 66866 and type in Untangle, you will automatically be logged in, and we will start sending you out information for our launching in January. Here's Untangle Addiction. You can go to discipleship.org to download it, or you can go to my professional website, healthymindmd.com. This is literally my office website um, where you can download it as well. You will see tons of videos, um, webinars, things that I have done that I post for my patients on there as well if you're interested. And you can also Facebook me um, and... um, become my friend if you like. I've you know, coming, been coming to Harpeth for the last two years. Um, I've made so many friends via Facebook, and my goal is to be accessible to you and to provide the expertise that God has allowed me to have. The purpose of this talk is to provide awareness and education, but also to provide information that may help you save a loved one's life or even your own. Can I get a show of hands of people here that may know somebody who struggles with some form of addiction? Okay. Can I see a show of hands of people in this room that may know somebody who has died because of an accidental overdose or an addiction-related issue? Keep your hands up. Look around the room, guys. Ten years ago, there may be one hand standing. Now it's commonplace that people we know, people we talk about at church, we find out that they have passed away accidentally from accidentally overdosing on opioids. It's a commonplace and an epidemic in our country. Often people ask me, Dr. DiCarvalho, what is addiction? How did this happen? Why is my son addicted to these things? Why, am, why can't I just have a normal life? 
Before we can even answer the question of what is addiction, we have to understand where addiction begins. Does it begin with the individual who his wife finds thousands of images of pornography on their home hard drive that has been hidden? An addiction that starts in the United States at nine years of age. People often ask me, Dr. D, how do I prevent my child from coming across pornography? How do I, what do I do? It's not preventable. It's accidental at how they come across pornography. Our society is designed today for education purposes, work purposes, that the internet, media, social media is out there. It's an incredible tool, but it can also be used to destroy a young boy like this who, after nine years of age, begins to see these images and he's navigating through life and he becomes a teenager and he goes to college and has a job and he's dealing with all the anxieties of life. But he has learned that he finds relief from the surge of a few chemicals that when he watches porn, it can make him escape all those feelings. Relief, guys, not just wanting to look at sex, but it's a coping mechanism that is a part of him now. Does it begin with the individual who, he's a young teen, true story, goes to his dentist to get his wisdom teeth taken out, and because of a genetic deficiency in making a chemical called dopamine, which allows us all to navigate life and feel good when we're supposed to, he's prescribed an opioid for post-operative pain, he takes that opioid, which releases massive amounts of dopamine, and for the first time of his life, he feels normal. He feels socially acceptable in his with his friends. He can walk through high school and, and feel okay and not want to hide in the corners. And he starts to get these pain pills from friends because they all have them. They all know, and you can Google online and research. Teens are looking forward to getting their wisdom teeth taken out because they know they'll get Percocets or Lortab. And so he navigates through high school, and he actually does really well. He gets into an Ivy League college, and he's still able to maintain this double life. But in his senior year, on graduation night, a friend of his gives him a Percocet, which is laced with a chemical called fentanyl, a hundred times more powerful than morphine. And his mother finds him dead the next morning, and his life is gone. Very common, guys. Does it begin with the female who she cannot wait to get home to have that first glass of wine because anxiety from work and she's trying to manage her life. She's trying to manage her children. She's a single mom and she comes home and has a glass of wine and it makes her push away and dampen those feelings and she can be present in her family. And then one glass of wine becomes two glasses and three glasses, then one bottle. And now she's facing incarceration because of multiple DUIs. All true stories. All of these addictions create codependency in the home. What is codependency? Well, one person identifies with being a victim. Without me, he, he's never going to do it. He's going to end up dead. He's going to get DUIs. And the other person identifies with being the perpetrator. I need her. She, without her, I'm a loser. I'm nothing. And that's the glue that keeps them together. There's no God. There's no love. And then 20, 25 years go by, and one of them is, I'm done. I can't do this anymore and the marriage is destroyed? Or does it begin when the CDC labels the opioid problem an epidemic with 80,000 people dying? This number is just gonna continue to rise, guys. There's, I mean, they're trying to do different things here and there recently, and Tennessee actually is one of the worst places for the opioid epidemic. I, in my hotel room, constantly throughout the day, I'm watching these reports about the opioid problem here and how horrible it is. It's all over the country but Tennessee is in a bad place. 
In order to understand where addiction begins, we have to look at the brain. We have been designed by God to experience pleasure out of things that keep us alive. You have a meal, you feel good. You sleep, you feel good. And all of these things allow us to repeat behavior over and over again. As a little child, you feel something good, you're going to continue to do it. And it becomes ingrained in our identities. And the reason is because of the release of a chemical called dopamine. Dopamine has gotten a lot of media attention as being this reward chemical, this chemical associated with addiction. But here's what a lot of people don't talk about, and you're not going to learn in the media. When dopamine is released, it lays down new neural networks in the brain, literally new nerves, okay? And we call that neuroplasticity. In neuroscience, we joke around and we say the brain is plastic. It's constantly changing shape. It's moldable. We used to believe that those neuroplastic changes only took place during the first three years of life and in the womb. Okay, that's why they'd say, put classical music in, by your womb so we can generate these neurons. But it's throughout your entire life. And we call that neuroplasticity. And what's associated with these neurons? Not just the things that you're ingesting or the things you're doing or the things you're viewing, but all the emotions associated with it. Everything associated with it. You go out to a restaurant and you want to have a great meal. Well, you want that ambiance. You want, that, you want to recreate that. Honey, let's go out to dinner. Let's get that pasta where they have that music. And I love the way the room is lighted. And we want to recreate. Our brain is demanding it. Why? Because it wants to release the same amount of dopamine to feel good. So it's not just sleeping and eating and you release dopamine. It's emotion. It's feeling. It's everything associated with it intertwined in neurons. Here's the problem. When you introduce something like opioids, nicotine, alcohol, pornography, gambling, gaming, food binging, they will produce way more dopamine than what your basic things for survival can produce. And once that happens, you will start to lay down new neural networks for that, specifically for that, that become intertwined with the neural networks that are there for survival. And now the brain becomes hijacked to believe it needs porn to survive, opioids to survive, nicotine to survive. A study was done on nicotine where after smoking one cigarette, one cigarette alone, today, with everything we know, that person will go on and develop a 20-year addiction to nicotine. What is the percentage? What do you think the percentage is, guys? Anybody can say? One cigarette. 69% of people. Because it tastes good? No, guys. There's something going on in the brain that changes, that changes shape. Why do you think big tobacco put nicotine, more nicotine in cigarettes? Because it wanted to hijack your brain to believe it needed to survive. When we look at the natural rewards of dopamine levels for food and sex, you eat a meal, you have a baseline dopamine that's released. You eat a meal, it surges up a little bit, it feels good, and it drops down. You have sex, and yes, we have to have sex, right, in order for all of us to be here, guys, right? God knew that we needed that reward for two people to come together. If you think about that, it's like so foreign. How would we want to do that without feeling good? And God designed us that way. We have sex, it releases dopamine a little bit more than food. But when you look at drugs, 
When you look at morphine, which is an opioid, when you look at cocaine, nicotine, and ethanol, look at the dopamine surges, but not just the surges, but how long dopamine stays in your system. For hours and hours, all the neuroplastic changes that are taking place, especially if you're taking an opioid three times a day prescribed by your doctor, and then morphine for breakthrough pain, all of that dopamine. When we look at crystal meth, a very addictive substance, look at how much dopamine is released. This is not just the basic dopamine blip with food and sex, guys. And now look at pornography. Here's the thing about porn. In the back here superimposed are all the other uh, addictive substances that I talked to you about. But look at porn, how when, you, when there's um, masturbation, ejaculation, and look at how much dopamine lingers in the body for hours, five hours. Imagine the gentleman who his wife leaves. Honey, I'm going to the mall. I'll be back. She leaves. She walks out. Boom. Hard drive. Looking, looking at porn. She decides to come home unexpectedly within two hours. And he's already been enmeshed in pornography. And all that, all that dopamine that's still there lingering as she's in the house, what does he have to do? Well, he's, he's got one foot in fantasy and he's got one foot in reality and he's trying to balance it. How does he do that with his wife, with all that dopamine there, laying down new neural what networks? He lies. And fantasy and reality, when you try to balance the two, you have to create a denial system and lies. And that's why for that young boy at nine years of age, who's navigated through life, trying to balance it, do all these things. Lying becomes a part of, it's second nature to him. That's why we would say, when, how do you know somebody who struggles with addiction through years is lying? And it's sad that we say these things. How do you know that they're lying? The moment they're moving their lips. It's so sad because it becomes a part of the neuroplasticity of the brain. So what is neuroplasticity? It's the formation of new neural pathways through repetitive behaviors, which release dopamine. Now imagine with me, if you will, you're a small child and your parents give you a tricycle. And you get on that bike and you can barely move the pedals, but then you get the strength to do it and you're cruising around and then they give you something with some training wheels, a five speed, a 10 speed, and then you move on to the banana seed Schwinn that you all have had when you were young kids, and you're a master at driving through the neighborhood, you're riding your bike, you're jumping curbs, you're incredible, you know how to depth perception and move around and all the good feelings associated with that bike. Then you go away to college, you get a career, you have kids, and you haven't ridden a bike in 25 years, okay? Then you go away with your family on a vacation somewhere and there's a bike tour. And you're walking over, you see all the bikes lined up and you're getting anxiety because you haven't even ridden. You know you got to go around some turns and see so your kids jumping on their bikes. They're zipping away. They're having fun. You get on your bike, you straddle it, you put your feet on the pedals, you start pedaling and whoo, you're gone. You haven't missed a beat. You're turning, you're feeling good. Everything's coming back. Is that muscle memory? There's no such thing as muscle memory, guys. Muscle is a piece of meat. There's no memory in muscle. It's the brain firing onto the muscles, maneuvering, depth perception, feel good, this memory, that memory. It's neuroplasticity. You will never forget how to ride that bicycle. And we'll go back to that. So this is neuroplasticity from left to right through repetitive behavior. And I put this image in my book. From left to right, you'll see the neurons, repetitive behavior continue to grow. And as it grows, it's not just telling how to turn the bike, but it's telling it how to lie on command, how to hide, how to come up with a story just like that to your boss, to your wife, 
how to find out. I want to be invited to the neighborhood party so that I can go in that medicine cabinet and look for pain pills. Like, how do I manipulate my neighbors to get in there? That's how deep this goes. And all that web, all that neuroplasticity, emotion, feeling, fear, all there. So what is addiction? In psychiatry, we look at three spheres. We look at the biological. We look at the psychological and the social. Biologically, what does your DNA say? What did your mother or father struggle with addiction or alcohol? What happened? Also biologically, were you prescribed medicine by a physician? The CDC has done a study that it's not the drug dealers. It's not, you know, these people in China. It is the physicians who have learned to prescribe opioids to treat pain aggressively. I'm an MD, and we have these meetings and conferences, and we debate this. And physicians prescribe the way they were trained. It's instinctive. To change that pattern is going to take time. And that's where we are in the opioid epidemic. So did a physician prescribe you these medicines? Psychologically, and probably one of the most important, what happened in your development? Were you brought up in the foster care system? Was there trauma in the home? Was there one parent? Were there two parents? What was the mirroring like as a child? When you were small and you looked up at your mother and you smiled, did she look back down at you and say, oh, what are you smiling at? How cute. Or did you look at a drunk father and smile and he said, what are you laughing at? Was there emotional trauma? Was there physical trauma? Sexual trauma? And then now as a young teen, a young adult, all the racing thoughts, all the nightmares, you can't sleep, you're trying to function and you've come across alcohol and it shuts it down. You've come across pornography and it shuts it down. You go, you go to the fridge and you binge on food and you can get back to bed and you want relief. You don't just want to get high, guys. How many people in church come up to me, bro, the one thing I can't overcome is porn. I'm good for about a month. It's the one thing I cannot overcome. Why? Socially, what goes on in your life today? Who's your social network? Do you go to your small group midweek and church on Sunday, but then you've got a double life where you have friends where anything goes after work, or you have a double life at work where you're totally different? Or socially, how are your finances? What's the stress in your life? How are you gonna pay your taxes? Are you engaged with your children? Are you engaged in your marriage? Do you lead your family? What is the chaos in your life today that when you get home, having three or four glasses of wine just shuts that down for you? Socially, where are you? And so in psychiatry, we would say, if you're hitting all three spheres, and you try something addictive, or you view something that's ad addictive in nature, you are more likely to develop an addiction. But then we said, there are people out there that they believe they're thoroughbreds. They don't have bad DNA. Psychologically, their development was incredible. Socially, they're in the ministry. So we study those people too, because they are at actually a higher rate of trying something addictive. And we studied them too, and we found that with use alone, just like that one cigarette, they can develop full-blown addictions too. So everybody's susceptible. It does not discriminate. The American Society of Addiction Medicine defines addiction as a, a primary chronic disease of brain reward. We talked about that. That's dopamine. Motivation, memory, and related circuitry. Dysfunction in these circuits. What is the dysfunction, guys? The new neuroplastic changes. 
where the brain becomes hijacked. It leads to characteristic biological, psychological, social, and spiritual manifestations. This is reflected in individually, individual pathologically pursuing reward, which is the young person who just is naive and wants to get high and they don't really know any better, or the majority of people we treat in addiction who are seeking relief, who just want to be normal, but they're stuck. All this information, guys, just so you know, is in the, in the free ebook. Okay, so if you're writing stuff down, all of this, word for word, it's all there for you. The most important concept we're going to talk about today is this, the pleasure-reward pathway. It's also called the mesolimbic dopamine system. I've labeled these three areas here. The middle one is reward, the yellow one memory, and the blue one judgment. In reward, that's the area that we talked about that's associated with when you give an addictive substance that produces more dopamine, it releases these massive amounts of dopamine. That's called the, the mesolimbic system. <clears throat> and so we've learned that when we do that, it hijacks the brain. Now, I want you to imagine with me, if you will, if I had a table right here, and I had three frames in the table. And in each frame, there's a photo of a seminal event in your life, something that the moment you look at gives you joy, like one of those little blips of dopamine, like with the food and the sex. So you look at a picture of your child being born, and you automatically feel the joy. You look at a picture of your marriage, your wedding, and you automatically feel great. You look at the, a picture of a baptism or a career, and you feel a sense of, of goodness, and that's because God has allowed us to do that, to release these dopamine surges, to feel good. So we'll continue these behaviors. But now the individual who has been, um, uh, who started taking opioids or started watching porn and starts to produce way more dopamine than these little blips down here, what ends up happening? It's like taking a hammer to these three frames, bam, 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 and all those blips just drop. And the most important thing to your brain is how am I gonna lie about getting opioids? How am I gonna get into my neighbor's house? How am I gonna hide or, or change the password on the hard drive so my wife doesn't find out? How am I gonna hide alcohol through the house? How am I gonna wake up so my, my husband or my wife doesn't see me and binge on food? It becomes survival to you. And your child, your career, all of that is second and even actually non-existent. And that's why people risk everything. We call it risk-taking behaviors. And they give up everything they've worked for because they're hijacked, they're stuck. The question is, why is there this incredible permanency? Why does this happen? Well, it's because of how these structures are laid out in the brain. That purple one that releases dopamine in the middle, but you see that yellow one where it says memory? right there, see that little ball at the end of there? That's called the amygdala. What is the amygdala designed for? Well, the amygdala was designed so that it, when we were, when, you know, back thousands and thousands of years ago, you're walking out of a cave and you're looking for your breakfast and you're yawning, you're walking out and there's a saber-toothed tiger outside right around the cave looking for his breakfast to come out of the cave and you're walking out and you don't even have to look over at the saber-toothed tiger because as he's running at you, all your senses are activating that amygdala, which creates a fight or flight response. Blood pressure goes up, eyes dilate, adrenaline saturates muscles, and you jump back in and you survive. 
We've heard the stories about the people. I was walking across the street, and it was like somebody pulled me back, and a bus was coming, was going to kill me. And I look back, and nobody pulled me back. How did I survive? Well, we have a structure in the brain called the amygdala that's so impulsive that just when it perceives fear, it reacts. In 300th of a second, it makes that decision. It can do it that quickly, and it's right next to where dopamine is released. Here's the main issue, though. Around the tail of the amygdala, see that tail there? That's called the hippocampus. That is all your memories, the hard drive of your brain. If you can think of a memory right now of third grade, second grade, an image, it's stored in your brain there. Imagine this, okay? All the memories, the good memories of your life, and all the bad memories, all the abandonment, all the sexual abuse, trauma, everything that happened in your childhood, everything that you saw in your house, everything is in that area, connected to the most impulsive area of your brain that is responsible to perceive threat to survive. Gentleman gets on his computer. He did struggle with pornography, and, and he really wants to overcome that, but he's on there doing work, and a pop-up comes up. All of a sudden, dopamine starts to release. And it may not even be pornography. It may be something subtle. Dopamine is being released from the purple area. It hits the amygdala. The amygdala is like, you need that. You want that to survive. You need that. It hits the hippocampus. All the images, all the memories, all the good times to get you to use it. And before you know it, click, 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 and you are deep in pornography. Individual goes to treatment for 90 days for addiction. 90 days he's there. He's learned all kinds of coping skills. He's developed all these new skills. He's going to AA. He gets out of treatment, grabs his cell phone, text right there. Hey, man, we missed you. Let's get high. Where have you been? He hasn't even used drugs yet. Dopamine is already being released, hitting the amygdala. You need that to survive. You want that to survive. Hitting the hippocampus. And before you know it, he's in some crack house somewhere, five-day binge, and he's right back in treatment. That same patient, I asked him, what happened? I'm an addict, he said. Addiction is a hijacking of the pleasure-reward pathway. So let's do something a little bit fun since it got a little sad and dark there. What is, uh, what is dopamine and hedonic tone? So dopaminergic tone is that dopamine, that those little blips that come out that we were designed to have. We look at a photo, we look at our child. I have a picture of my son on my phone right now playing golf and I, and I see that picture, he's eight years old and it automatically brings me joy the moment I see it. That's dopaminergic tone. We have been designed by God to be able to do that. It decreases pain, it increases motivation, it gives confidence, it gives reward, it reduces depression. It reduces anxiety. It increases pleasure in the current activity. That's why we keep going back. Imagine with me, if you will. You put one of these carrots in your mouth. There's dirt on it. It's cold. I mean, it's not giving you a lot of emotion or good feeling. It's crunchy and cold. But now imagine you're eating this. The perfect combination of hot fudge, strawberry, just sitting in your mouth. As I'm telling you this right now, guys, and I've done this before, I'm feeling it right now. Okay, that's the release of dopamine. What if I would have put up there a picture of some beers or people having a good time getting drunk or some heroin or some porn? 
Can you imagine how much dopamine would be released and how that would affect you? Why is it that when we're at a restaurant and we are stuffed to the point where we cannot eat anymore and you're saying to your, your wife or your friend, I can't believe I ate this much. And there he comes with the dessert tray. <laughs> right there. And you look at it and you're like, two spoons? That's what we say. Because we can't hold back. Just that one little piece, right? That's how powerful this is, guys. So is there hope for sobriety? Okay, I'm up here right now, and gosh, it's like, why'd they invite this guy? It's, it sounds like there's no way we're going to overcome. We're never going to get through the opioid epidemic. I'm never going to overcome my different addictions. I'm not saying that there's not hope, guys. But what I'm trying to teach you is that you will always be vulnerable. And there's a tremendous amount of humility that goes with it. Dr. D, I want to put that chapter in the back. I don't want to go to AA. I don't want to go to NA. I don't want to go to celebrate recovery. I'm done. That's in my past. That person is going to relapse. But the person that is vulnerable, that works on their addiction daily, that works on their spirituality daily, and we're going to get back to that, they have the best chance at maintaining sobriety. Vulnerability. Remember the bicycle, guys. It never goes away. All those neuroplastic changes, all the porn you've seen, all the stuff you've done, it's going to be there. But there is hope. The vulnerability lasts there because of the neuroplastic changes. Remember the bicycle. So where does the hope lie? Far away from all that drama with the purple and yellow structures there is that blue structure called judgment. Okay? That's called the frontal lobe. That is where rational thinking lies. We call it executive function, right and wrong. Why you're here today, why you're in front of me today. It's rational thinking. It's not impulsive like the amygdala. It's rational. It's calculated. It's thinking. It's when you open the Bible and you counted the cost to follow Christ. You made a decision to not live in sin anymore. It's in the frontal lobe, not impulsive. Not, I, I want to do the, just baptize me. I want this. I need, no, it's not that. Rational thinking. And that lies in the frontal lobe, an area of the brain that's not developed until about 22, 23 years of age. Our teens, they can perform quadratic equations. They can write essays. They can get into Harvard. They look like adults. They'll start out the morning and they're doing awesome. They go to school and they scroll through those little things that they have in their hands and somebody posts something on social media. That's not good. And their entire network is dissolving in their mind. And they don't have a fully developed frontal lobe that can rationally navigate through the impulsivity of, you're a loser, you're no good, you're fat, you're ugly. They'll dump you. You'll never get friends again. It goes into the hippocampus. And there's images and memories there of abandonment or whatever it is. And because they don't have a frontal lobe that can navigate through that charged mesolimbic system and say, everything is going to be okay, they'll end their life. In fact, there was a young teen in the varsity basketball team in Jacksonville, where I live, who, I mean, was going away to college, everything. Something happened like that at school, and he ended his life on campus this last year. Where do teens get their frontal lobes, guys? Mom and dad. Mom and dad. 
until they're of age where they can navigate through this charged, impulsive area of the brain. So the hope lies in that frontal lobe. Why, does that, why is there hope there? Because that's where you can develop a value-based system, a set of values that are all over the scriptures. Go to AANA. The steps are there. Go to Celebrate Recovery. These are sets of values. Who you want to be, why you want to be here, why you want to be sober. We need values and teachings in order to deal with these impulsive areas of the brain that can become hijacked. They work together. It's like a battle between the two. One is saying, I want to just react, and the other one's saying, calm down. In fact, Freud called it the, the id, the ego, and the superego. He didn't really know these structures, but it's been around for a long time. So the frontal lobes are responsible for executive function, right and wrong, values. What is important to you? They're not impulsive like what we find in the amygdala. The hope lies in the frontal lobe. So how do we strengthen the frontal lobe? How do we make these things strong? Through neuroplasticity. The same thing that created the addiction, guys. The same thing. Okay? The brain is a use it or lose it system. You continue to use the areas that are addictive in nature. You continue to look at porn. You continue to do those things. Those things are going to strengthen. But if you stop using them, they will weaken. But now you start to develop a healthy lifestyle where you develop neuroplastic changes in the front of your brain. Okay? And where do you find those? In the scriptures. Celebrate recovery. You develop a new value-based system. You identify the triggers. You identify that having all those phone numbers in your cell phone as somebody to text you is not a wise idea. It's not a wise idea to drive past the bar that used to hang out with all your friends. It's not a wise idea to, you know, have your laptop where you could roam around anywhere in the house and look at porn. It's definitely not a wise idea to allow your children to navigate through Snapchat and all these things that are out there. And that's another talk I'll be doing for you guys tomorrow. So we identify all those triggers, and then now we start to put together a healthy lifestyle that we can put in the frontal lobe. So I put here, the brain is a use it or lose it system, so we teach patients to engage in these new healthy uh, behaviors. We teach them through discipleship, through celebrate recovery, through spirituality. I have never met an individual that I have worked with in addiction that has been able to maintain their sobriety without a relationship with another person who is doing the same exact thing. Meaning, they've been there. They get what's going on in your brain. One of my patients, I said, so you're going to AA, how's it going? Awesome, it's going great. I go every single day. I'm like, how, how are you navigating through that with time with your wife? How does she, how does she feel about AA? He's like, well, she doesn't know about AA. I'm like, your wife doesn't know you go to AA? He's like, no, I don't want to tell her about my addiction. I'm like, so you lied about your addiction and now you're lying about your sobriety. <laughs> he's going to eventually relapse. But he's like, my wife is sober though. She doesn't have a problem, so it's good. She's like my sober support. How is she gonna know what's going on in your brain when you relapse and you need somebody to be there for you to bring you back up? She's gonna be like, I'm done. That same thing that happens in codependency. Finally, somebody is just like, I am done. We need relationships with other people who are doing that. The parallel to discipleship, guys, is I've never met anybody who can maintain a deep spiritual relationship with Jesus without somebody who's doing the same thing too. 
somebody that's come from a life of sin, that's given that over. We have to have those discipling relationships. Why is AA Celebrate Recovery? Why are all these mutual help groups so successful? Discipleship, that's what they've been doing. They know it, they get it. You have to have somebody who will confront you, who is transparent, who is vulnerable with their own lives, who's been there. The purpose of a man's heart is deep waters, guys, but it's a man of understanding that brings it out. That's a reciprocal relationship. The person that's been sober for 20 years needs the person that's been sober for one day. So neuroplasticity, allowing for the frontal lobe to guide us to our next decision instead of the amygdala dictating and impulsively making our next decision. So just like we went from left to right, this area that's in that survival area, that just all the lies, all that, can go from right to left and be weakened, but it will always be there. Remember the bike. But now in the frontal lobe, you can go from left to right and create new neuroplastic changes that are healthy. Romans 12, 2, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. I didn't know Paul was a neuroscientist, but he got it. You know, he, without a doubt, I, so people have asked me, like, if you could go back in the first century and, and really be there with these guys, what would you like to see? Would you like to be there at the crucifixion or the resurrection? And me being an addiction specialist, I'm like, I just want to know the thorn in, in Paul's side. What did he go through? I mean, he got it, but he understood that he needed that thorn to show the power of Jesus. And he was grateful for it. And that's what I'm talking about. Those people that just want to move away from that dark chapter in their lives, like, I don't want to go back there. I'm like, thank God you have an addiction that could kill you because because of that, you can really step into real life. So when the frontal lobes, guys, when the frontal lobes are stronger than the brain reward pathway, okay, think about that. The brain reward pathway is always strong. If you had coffee this morning, food this morning, and you slept last night, you strengthened your brain reward pathway, right? And everything else that's intertwined there. So it's always charged. The frontal lobe, did you wake up this morning? Did you pray? Did you read the Bible? Did you read out of your, the, the big blue book in AA? The frontal lobe needs to be strengthened every day because it's a decision. It doesn't impulsively just do it on its own. You don't have to worry about going to bed. You're gonna, your body's going to demand you go to bed. That's how powerful that system is. When the frontal lobes are stronger than the pleasure reward pathway, what do we call that? Sobriety. We call that spirituality. We call that walking with Christ. When the frontal lobe is being fed with the scriptures, with prayer, with your relationships that are deep, you're going to have an incredible walk with God and you'll maintain your sobriety at the same time. It's important to understand that the pleasure reward pathway is always strong. We mentioned that. Why? Because it's about survival. When the frontal lobes are weaker than the pleasure reward pathway, and how does that happen, guys? Dr. D, I've got a family. I can't go to AA every day. I can't go to Celebrate Recovery. I have priorities. I have finances. I got to take care of my kids. And I get all that. And that's real. That's a reality of life. We've got to help these people navigate through that. But if they're not focusing on their sobriety, and that is the main thing, and they're back in treatment for 90 days, or they end up with a DUI and they're incarcerated, or they're spiritually dead in their home, how, what's the purpose of living? They're not even present. 
When the frontal lobe is weaker than the pleasure reward pathway, what do we call that? Relapse. Spiritual death. There's a war going on between that frontal lobe and that pleasure reward pathway. It's important to understand they're not separate. They're always working together and battling together. I want this. I want that. I need relief. I want to get away. I don't don't want to feel this. I'm fearful. I just want to go to bed. And the frontal lobe is coming back like, be still and know that I'm God. Be still. Everything is going to be fine. You're going to get through this. The frontal lobe rationally helps you navigate through those things. In Romans 7, I love God's law with all my heart, but there's another power within me that is war within my mind. This power makes me a slave to sin that is still within me. Oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? Thank God the answer is in Jesus Christ, our Lord. So you see how it is? In my mind, I really want to obey God's law, but because of my sinful nature, I'm a slave to sin. He got it. He understood it. He understood that there's a part of him that loves God, that loves it. But also there's this part of him that he's gonna battle with every day of his life. So why do people relapse? We talked about that. The number one reason really is unhealthy relationships. A lack of relationships with people that are in recovery and then relationships that you continue to dive in with people that anything goes. A lack of discipling relationships with healthy accountability, transparency, and vulnerability. All, in my book, all of this stuff is laid out there. This is, this is what I teach in there. And not working on sobriety daily. Relationships, mutual help groups, celebrate recovery, all the A's, A-A-N-A-O-A-G-A. So mutual help groups, why do they work so well? Well, imagine this, Marcus goes, Dr. D, Marcus goes to AA, he's a few days sober and I get there and I'm, I'm fired up, like I just wanna be sober. I'm the guy making the coffee. I'm the guy putting the chairs together. Everybody knows Marcus. Three, four months go by, I start to show up to AA, kind of disheveled looking, or one night I show up where I'm looking like I'm gonna go out afterwards. And my sponsor comes up to me and he's like, Marcus, you know, when you first came out here, we noticed that you were the guy doing the coffee, you were the guy doing the chairs, you were fired up. But the other day you said something that was a little off and the, and you, the other day you came in, you smelled like cigarettes, like you came from a bar. He's like, I'm afraid you're moving from the frontal lobe to the mesolimbic system. You're gonna fire onto the amygdala, hit the hippocampus, release dopamine, and you're gonna relapse. He's not gonna say all those words. (laughs) But in AA, they get it because of the relationships that are built over time. They see you when you're doing good. They see you when you're doing bad. And they see this pattern. It's just like in our churches, guys. It's just like in our small groups when people are doing awesome spiritually and then they're not returning calls. There's something odd. There's some weird, you know, uh, vocabulary being used. You can sense it and it's the spirit that senses it as well. There's nothing new here and that's why it's so successful because of the deep relationships. Proverbs 20 verse five, the purpose of a man's heart are deep waters. It's a man of understanding that draws them out. In Mark 9, we see Jesus walking through the towns. His disciples come to him. Jesus, there's this boy. He's convulsing. Please come help him. Jesus comes to him. He sees him. He looks at the father. How long has he been like this? Since birth, the father says. What does Jesus say to him? Everything is possible for one who believes. 
The father looks at him. He's like, I do believe, but help me with my unbelief. Dr. D, what are you going to tell me? This is my third treatment. I want to believe that I can be sober. Help me. Well, tell me something that's going to change my mind. You've been trying to be sober by yourself. You don't believe your son can change because of you. But what about me? What about Jesus? Do you believe with me he can overcome? That's what Jesus commands. That's what AA, Celebrate Recovery, commands. It's about their higher power. It's about Jesus. It's not about you alone. You alone will destroy relationships, lie, sin, fall into you know, uh, um, impurity, addiction-related issues, but only with God can you overcome. And that's why all these groups are so successful, because they are spiritually based and based on discipleship. The only reason why people doubt and they don't have hope is because they look back at the evidence of their lives. They look back at the hippocampus when they try to do it all on their own, and they're not going to be able to do it. They will fail every time. So overcoming your unbelief. So how do we do this? With a deep understanding of what is discipleship. We have to have a deep understanding. Why did everyone know who Jesus' disciples were? By the way they loved each other. By their relationships with each other. It was clear who Jesus' disciples were. Do you have those relationships in your life? Are you a part of a Celebrate Recovery program or a program in your church that's based on true discipleship to allow you, to help you overcome? Relationships that are based on transparency, vulnerability, empathy. We talked about that. Also, I love this quote by John Orberg. To be fully known and fully loved is the most healing gift one human can, uh, be, being can give to one another. It's important for us to have a deep understanding in discipleship of who Jesus was. And this, is, this scripture, without a doubt, is probably one of the theme scriptures in addiction. For we do not have a high priest who's unable to empathize with our weakness. Some translations use the word symp- sympathetic. But empathy is that I shared in your suffering. I've been there with you. I know what you're feeling. I don't just feel sorry for you. I have been there. Jesus has been there. That's why he is this incredible high priest. And that's why we can approach the throne of grace with confidence. Because he was a man. Also, a deep understanding of who Jesus was. And we don't have to spend time reading this, but it's, this is the foundation of being able to look at Jesus as this is who is going to help me overcome. A deep love for the scriptures, guys. A place where you can find your values. For physical training is of some value, but godliness has values for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. This is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance for all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. A transformation through the spirit. You have the spirit. That's a huge difference, guys, for those who are out there that do not, who are trying to function as parents, who are trying to navigate through this double life. And a true purpose. Without purpose... There's no way that this can all work. In Celebrate Recovery, it is a disciple-making ministry. 
Yeah, we help people with sobriety, but we're making disciples. We're not just working with the people in that church. We're bringing people in. We're teaching them about Jesus. We're converting them. That's why there is a purpose there. People have something more than, what was their old purpose? Going out, meeting somebody at a bar, going home, being able to look at some porn on TV. That was their purpose because they wanted relief from suffering. They wanted relief from whatever it was that was killing them on a day-to-day. And now you don't even have to think about yourself anymore. You can think about the lost. Walking in sobriety, the journey. For though a righteous man falls seven times, he will rise again, but the wicked stumble into calamity. The thing about addiction, guys, and this is going to be important for you, for those of you who are working with people in your churches that it's just like, man, they just keep falling back and falling back, or even yourself. When we look at the definition of addiction, the American Society of Addiction Medicine, and this is not a spiritual book, they say addiction is a disease of remission and relapse. And all disease, by definition, have remission and relapse. The problem with the relapse for addiction is that we are so focused on the behavior. Like, you're never going to overcome this. You know, let's get together with the elders. I don't know if you, we may need to ask you to leave the church or your child. Like, why are you, when are you going to stop doing this? Or your husband. You told me you were going to stop drinking. We look at the behavior, but we have to understand that it is a disease of good remission and then some dips. But the success of addiction is that it's kind of like, you know, you're going up, you drop, you're going up, you're dropping. Remember all that neuroplasticity and all the work we got to do in the frontal lobe, all the work we got to do in the scriptures, all the work we got to do to walk with God. Remember us when we were young Christians. I remember in the beginning, it was difficult for me to remove myself from my past. But I fought and I kept going and I had people who loved me, who never gave up on me, who pushed through with me. That's where we get to a place of long-term sobriety. I rarely meet somebody in treatment that comes in one treatment admission or they see me one time and they're smooth sailing. I've never seen it. This is reality. The majority of life is suffering, guys. From the moment we're born to the moment we get older, as we get older, we see more suffering. There are great memories intertwined, but the majority of life when we walk out of these doors is hard. The Lord helps the fallen and lifts those bent beneath their loads. No temptation has seized you, has overtaken you that is unusual for human beings, but God is faithful. He will, he will not allow you to be tempted beyond your strength. Instead, along with the temptation, he will also provide a way out so that you may be able to endure it. Tons of scriptures for people who are trying to maintain that sobriety and navigate through it. Confess your sins to each other. Pray for each other. These are phenomenal scriptures for the discipling relationship. Personal responsibility, and this is important. Because sometimes I'll give these talks and people will say, well, Dr. DeCarball, are you saying that they don't have any personal responsibility? They're hijacked, they're stuck, they're never gonna overcome? No, there is a personal responsibility and this is laid out in the scriptures and only God can judge, okay? But it's important that we have a tremendous humility to that as we try to navigate and maintain our sobriety. So let's just take a look uh, at Jesus here for an example. 320, I'm doing good on time, that's rare. Um, but I, I'm, I'm up at 3.30, you said? Oh, cool. We could do some questions at the end. Matthew 26, 36. A moment in time where our God, the creator of this world, was so overwhelmed with fear of what was to come 
My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Quote, unquote. This is not being dramatic. This is our God. This is Jesus. He was at a place where he could not even, he couldn't even think. And what was he asking for from his father? Relief. He was asking for relief. When we look at how Jesus was empathetic, guys, how many of us have been in a place where we feel so overwhelmed, we just wanted to be shut down and go away? He himself asked for this. He was fused to those feelings, fused as if you couldn't even see a dividing line of two pieces of metal together where his feelings and emotion dictated that next statement to his father asking for relief. Have you ever been in a place where you're so overwhelmed with anxiety, where you can't even think rationally? We call that actually amygdala hijacking. The amygdala overtakes the frontal lobe for a quarter of a second. So you can't even think rationally. We've heard the stories. He bumped me in my car and all I saw was red. I got out of the car and I killed him. And I don't even remember doing it. Impulsive. You can't even see. You can't even rationally think. And the more your amygdala goes there, and the more the amygdala is hardened because you've allowed it to go there, it's harder to rationally think. And so we go to these places where we just want relief. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, knowing he was going to be separated from his father, knowing he was going to be spat on and flogged and crucified, everything he feared. My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. What did Jesus do? He toiled. He first said, not as I will, but as you will. He toiled with God. He went to God in prayer. He stepped into his life. He focused on his values. His values were clear to him. Oftentimes when we feel emotion and feeling, and I will do this with myself, and it's a form of therapy called acceptance and commitment therapy, where we, we feel an emotion and we feel it so heavily, we want relief from it. And we, we tend to go towards it unless we have a very strong set of values. Why am I here? Who do I want to be? When I drive up to my house, and this is something I used to struggle with significantly, when I drive up to my house... I have four little boys, ages one, three, five, and seven, and I see them running all over the place in there. I'm looking through the window. I'm driving, and I see my wife, and there's a mess everywhere, and I'm like, why isn't she taking care of the house? I worked all day, and I would struggle with that anger, and it was something that we really had to deal with, and I learned that I would sit in my car, and I would go to God, and I would say, God, I notice I'm having this feeling of anger I notice I'm having a feeling that she just doesn't respect me. But my values say, I want to go in there. I want to kiss her on the, on the cheek. I want my kids to see me walk in there calm, not keeping records of wrong. I want to get on the floor with them. I want to pick up their things. I want, my, I want my wife to see me lead her. Those are my values. That's discipleship for my boys. And so it motivates me in real time. Those feelings, I'm not fused anymore, but I'm diffused by saying, I notice I'm having a feeling. I notice it's a feeling. It's not a value. It's not truth. These are real. This is emotion and feeling that's gonna cause me to spiral. And it motivates me to move me from here to here. It's called acceptance and commitment therapy. So in real time, you can actually do that. You know, Jesus, 
He went to God in prayer. He was able to toil through it. He still had to face flogging, crucifixion, separation, and he knew it was to come. It wasn't like he went to God in prayer and he felt good. And I'm not trying to teach you that, guys. I'm not trying to teach you a technique that's going to make you feel better, but it's going to allow you to step into difficulty. The majority of life is hard. There's no way. If you go see a therapist and they tell you, I'm going to make you feel better, I'm going to do this type of therapy or that, and you're going to feel good, no. You need a therapy that's going to actually allow you to step into your life and navigate through it. It's always going to be hard. And so when Judas showed up, did he turn to his disciples and say, grab your swords, let's fight, let's run? No, here comes my betrayer, let's go. He stepped into his life. He knew what he had to face. That is what I'm trying to teach you today. He was committed to his values. Set your mind on things above. Where are your values, guys? Remember, let's go back to it, the frontal lobe. Your value-based system is in your frontal lobe. The more you pour into that, the more you go to classes while you're here, the more you focus in on building your discipling relationships, all those things are gonna develop that frontal lobe. So in real time, when you're seeking relief, when your brain is demanding relief, just like it demands sleep, breakfast, coffee, it's gonna demand you go to your frontal lobe. So what really matters to you? How do you want to be remembered by your wife, your children, your friends, your coworkers? Those are your values. And so what does the community today call all this? What is, what is prayer? What is stepping into your values? What does the community call this today? Mindfulness, guys. This is all over. This is every, everything mindful, mindful, mindful. What is mindfulness? Mindfulness is stepping into what you feel, making room for negative feelings, being able to sit in your feelings, but not just sit there and be useless, but take action based on your values. What if in real time at work, you're in the workplace and something happens and it's stressful, and whatever, you're just gonna go into your, your office and lock yourself in there and be like, <laughs> no, you gotta make a decision. And you need values to be able to navigate through difficulty. To close out here, guys, this is a, I'll get emotional. These are my two sons. Whenever I bring them up, I always do. So these are the two oldest of the four. That's Rafa on the right, and that's Paulo on the left. We're Brazilian, so all of my kids have Brazilian names. And I told them before coming here, I said, you know, I'm gonna give this talk on mindfulness, and I wanna take a picture of you guys kind of showing mindfulness. So we go out in the back of my house, and they run there, and they get into that pose. And I was like, I know my kids, you know, I know they're not doing yoga or anything at home, or, and I look back at my wife, and she starts laughing. She's like, they're doing mindfulness with them at school. And I was like, wow. The schools get it, guys. It's not just about the teen I worked with that died before going away to Ivy League school. It's not just about the gentleman whose wife found thousands of pornographic images or the woman facing incarceration, guys. It's about our kids. When Rafa is facing somebody giving him pain pills or he's looking at that porn that's gonna come accidentally in his life and he's facing it and he's feeling that pull to wanna do it, I don't want him to seek relief. I want him to seek his values. I want him to seek Jesus. 
So the question is, the question is to, is it, is, would it be better to have somebody with the same addiction to have in a discipling relationship? That would be ideal. Um, but even today, when you go to AA, right, AA is not just filled with people who struggle with alcohol anymore. I go to AA weekly. I'm not in recovery, but I go as a friend of AA. So I'm going to send people to AA. I'm going to go to AA. And what I see in AA is there are people that raise their hands and they'll say, I'm addicted to porn. I'm addicted to pain pills. I'm addicted to, and it's, sometimes it's hard to find somebody to sponsor you or disciple you that has the same addiction. It would be ideal. Um, I think over time you can find that person. Um, but if not, it would be great to just find somebody who's doing it, working on it daily, and develop a relationship with them. Yes, yeah. Somebody who does not have an addiction, okay, should not even be discipling somebody that struggles with addiction. It's just going to be overwhelming for them. They're not going to know what to do. They're going to try. They're going to try to, but they're just, they're, they're actually, it's going to cause a wedge in that relationship, and it's just not going to be healthy for the two of them. Remember, the purpose of a man's life is deep waters, but it's a man of understanding that draws him out. That's a reciprocating relationship. Those are two people who understand each other. There are a lot of doctors out there that don't have addiction-related issues um, that are treating addiction, and that's, that is a reality. I would, you know, um, I would seek somebody out. You can Google online. People who are in recovery who, who treat addiction are very open about their recovery. Um, and, and as a matter of fact, the recovery industry in general, there are treatment centers that are run by CEOs who are in recovery and they're open about it. And usually people that graduate from those treatment programs will stay on and get work and get master's degrees. And those are the best people in recovery. Great question. Yes, sir. Right. Absolutely. So a big part of why people continue to relapse is because they're fear to go into withdrawal. Okay. Um, and that's the reality. That is real. It, you can have withdrawal in porn, opioids, alcohol. With alcohol, the medical necessity of, of, of treating withdrawal and eating even um, is that you can actually die. Right. Opioids, you won't die, but you will feel even worse than alcohol withdrawal. Okay? So people will continue to relapse. But there are treatments out there. When, when people are educated and understand, like, look, you actually don't have to go through withdrawal. Um, I actually am the medical director of a hospital in Jacksonville. And I'm actually, I actually oversee five addiction treatment centers in the U.S., Oregon, Arizona, Georgia, and Jacksonville, where I've designed protocols so that the moment the patient gets into treatment, they are put on a regimen of medication where they're not zonked out and they're actually able to participate in therapy but not feel the pains of withdrawal. The old way of doing addiction treatment and uh, treating people in, in detox is you give them massive amounts of phenobarbital, like massive amounts of medicines, and they are literally sleeping for five days. That is not the way to do it, Thorazine even. So, but there are other ways of treating that, really great medications that are coming out um, that you don't actually have to do that. So you know, it's just a matter of getting with a good professional or a good treatment center that actually can treat you that way. And if, if any of you need recommendations on it, you know, just go to Facebook, type in my name, send me a text through there, and I, I'll give you all the information you need. One of the first an addict, always an addict. So the, the terminology, I, I think it's, it's derogatory in nature, so it makes people, it actually can reinforce some of the underlying reasons why they seek relief. Maybe their development, somebody told them they were bad, they were no good. When they relapse. Right. So, and, and so what I try to teach patients is that, hey, you're doing great right now. If something happens along the way, that you relapse, okay? Or you come into my office and we do a urine drug screen and you're positive, I'm not gonna kick you out. Yeah. 
Like my urine drug screens in my office are not to catch people and kick them out. I know that they're going to test positive eventually. Obviously, they're going to relapse, but it's an opportunity for me to change the treatment and see like, hey, you need something more. It's just like in our discipling relationships. It's like, you know somebody who struggles with pornography, if you allow for that relationship to have, hey, look, you're doing great. Right now you're fired up and you're doing awesome, but you may, something may happen tonight or tomorrow. That's fine. Just come to me as quick as you can. Let's walk through it together. That's the type of relationship as physicians we want to have with people. And that's the type of discipling relationships we want to have with people. We have to have understanding. So using that always an addict, you know, Obviously, I look at it from a neuroplasticity perspective. When people quit smoking, and I ask them, so you've quit smoking, how many years have you been you know, without a cigarette? Well, I'll, occasionally I'll have a cigarette. And I'll say, when? When I have a glass of wine. When they drink alcohol, it activates all the other areas they're addicted to, and they will crave nicotine, okay? So the neuroplasticity, that's why you will always be vulnerable. That's it. You'll always be vulnerable, but saying once an addict, always an addict. Addiction is living a double life. Addiction is the lies, the risk-taking behavior, okay? The disease is not addiction. It's the vulnerability. Yes? So I would say, you know, if, you, if it's a matter of um, staff and being able to do that, groups of three, groups of four that are discipling relationships where everybody's transparent with each other, the smaller the group, the better, because the deeper the relationship. Um, ideally, one-on-one is really, really great, but I've seen a lot of success with three and four people. Where is your program? In Memphis, Tennessee. Okay, awesome. I'd love to be able to connect with you guys and try to help you. Yes. Right. So come to my talk tomorrow. <laughs> I'm doing a whole talk um, on parenting and helping teens. But just in a nutshell, essentially, it's, it's adults that are involved in those teen relationships that really can pour into them. And it can be a manpower issue. Um, but the more somebody who has a frontal lobe that's developed, who's a seasoned person, who may be going through what this child went through when they were young, that person is the person that's going to navigate them through. Eventually, that teen will go on to college and high school and get it. It's just like our teens as kids, you know, and, and, and parents. I had a, a parent yesterday, uh, we were at this Renew conference yesterday, and the dad said to me, he's like, man, I just, it's like, he, he just doesn't change. Like, he's just not getting it. He's about to go away to college, and I'm worried about him. I'm like, be relentless with your child. Be the dad that's going to show up at the dorm unexpectedly. That's who I'm going to be. Hey, Rafa, I'm here to visit. Oh, dad. I'm going to be that dad. And he's going to know that. Uh, the awkward conversations, the dialogue that I've had with my sons from, gosh, age one to now, it is a discipling relationship that is continuing to grow in a vocabulary they can understand. So by the time they're 15, it's not new to them. It's not foreign. We've been talking about all these things. They know what, how to pick out daddy's favorite um, verses about David in the Bible that are a part of my value system. They know where to go in there. And they're eight and six. Do your kids know that? Do the people in your churches know your value-based system that you're discipling? It's not just about their values, but do they know what you go to, through too? I have that transparency with my boys. I don't want anything to be new and foreign to them when they're 15 and 16, because if it's new and foreign, they're going to go look for their buddy or their dad, their friend's dad that's super cool. You know, I want them to come to me. Yes, sir. So that's called um, transcranial magnetic stimulation. We use MRIs 
to actually map the brain, find the areas of the brain that are responsible for depression, anxiety, actually obsessive compulsive disorder was just FDA approved. We're using it for autism and Parkinson's. Um, we find those areas and then we deliver pulses with that MRI to that specific area of the brain to bring up the chemicals that treat depression and anxiety like serotonin, dopamine, and norepinephrine. The efficacy, the effectiveness of this treatment is about 80 to 90%. The medications we take orally like Prozac have a 30 percent efficacy. We go directly to the spot in the brain. When you take a pill, it goes through your stomach. It's got to get activated in the liver and then finally make it to your brain. That's why it takes about four weeks to work. But this is really a paradigm shift in, in the treatment of psychiatry. And there's a lot of work now with addiction. I mean, we know all the areas of addiction. And I'm not, like as a physician, as an MD, I'm licensed to do I can do off-label anything. The FDA approves it so that the insurance company can say, we'll pay for it. But these treatments are out there. The, I mean, it, that's a life, um, that's a life-threatening illness, and basically it's, yeah, so when, when you have too much, you're making too much serotonin, or you're giving medications that give you too much serotonin, you can die. I'm taking it. Right. So, um, oh, yeah, the, I'm, I, I haven't been saying the questions, I'm sorry. Um, so the question basically is, how do we, how can we help people that have trauma-related issues in a discipleship relationship? He mentioned how going to therapy, people share that that may work, but how do we do it um, from a pastoral standpoint? Um, I, unless you have significant training in being able to help somebody navigate through trauma, I would never go back into their past traumas. Um, that is very, very dangerous. Um, it can open up a whole world of even suppressed traumas that they don't even know from a conscious perspective exist. Um, but what I would do is help them with the here and now. Um, if they talk to you about nightmares that are very clear, if they talk to you about flashbacks throughout the day that come, um, I would pray with them. I would ask God for, to help them, things like that. But anything that goes beyond that needs to be dealt with by a professional who can do treatments like EMDR, who could do treatments like DBT, CBT, trauma-focused psychotherapy, who are very good at, over time, being able to kind of unravel their past, deal with it, help them get through, and then maintain that. Right, so, so if they bring up a traumatic story, it's in the present, they're dealing with it, it's conscious, and you pray with them and you help them work through that with them. That's how, that's, that's how I would deal with it. I wouldn't ever say to somebody like, can you remember a time in your past or go back? Or, I would never do that with them. They can decompensate right in front of your eyes. Like, I mean, it's like two different people, and you will be so over your head, you'll be headed to an emergency room. Mm-hmm. So um, that's, that is an excellent question. Um, the, you have not, so as far as the brain disease of addiction, that ha does not apply to you, but you are a part of the treatment of addiction on that other side, the empathy, being there for them, helping them know what is to come if they continue down that path. You can be a great asset for them, but if they do need long-term sobriety where they have to be in recovery, they have to be with somebody who's actually, who actually understands because they have been there in their addiction. For you, you would do great at helping them bring them to that person, go with them to AA, be there for them, be a support, but at the same time, it'll be very difficult for you to understand really that war that's going on in their brain. But I would, I would, I mean, you're an asset, you know, I mean, incredible asset, and I would go after it, help people develop programs. I just, you know, I was contracted by the Jacksonville Sheriff's Office to work with their detectives to teach, I did the same exact talk to a room filled with detectives 
you know, just for them to understand, uh, have better understanding. I brought in all the spiritual aspects to it and they loved it and it helped them be more empathetic with the people they find on the street who are in respiratory suppression, who have to be Narcan, who are dying. We look at that image in Time Magazine that came out a while ago. I usually uh, show it in my presentation. I didn't today where two officers come across these two individuals and they got needles in their arms and they're literally dead and there's a child in the back. And they took a photo because they were so overwhelmed. These are first responders. They see it. This is nothing new. But they just, with the child in the back there, they were like, they took a photo, they posted on social media, and it was so controversial, they almost lost their jobs. But it spiraled into this chain of events where political figures got involved, and they started developing all these programs. And that's what I would do if I were you. Dual diagnosis? Oh, schizoaffective or schizophrenia? Yeah. So, so, and we could talk more on the side because we have, like, 30 seconds, but uh, the majority of patients I work with have an underlying psychiatric illness that they use alcohol, drugs, or porn to deal with. And we call that dual diagnosis. There's a diagnosis of addiction, which actually comes a little bit later, and this underlying illness, which could be schizoaffective, it could be borderline personality, it could be schizophrenia, depression, anxiety. And alcohol suppresses an area in the brain responsible for us to be emotionally aware so we don't feel. We literally have a structure that allows us to take emotions and feelings and register them and label them. Okay, But when you take a shot of vodka or whiskey or watch porn, it turns it off so you don't feel anymore. So a lot of people who struggle with delusions, voices, anxiety, learn that over time, that if they just drink as much as possible, they could shut that off. But I'd be more than happy to talk to you a little bit more after. Last question, sir. Yes, I have. Not only, not only in non-denominational churches, but also the Catholic Church. Actually, I was contracted by the church to, to do that. So what's your advice? Um, if they are active in their addiction, they need to definitely get treatment at a spiritually based type of program. Um, they need to um, be very vulnerable and transparent that they are in recovery, you know, um, with the membership, right? That may be very difficult. I don't know where you come from, but there's no way to maintain long-term sobriety if you're gonna bleed, you know, the flock um, and, um, and work on sobriety every single day. It's, it's sin, you know, it's discipleship. It's a spiritual walk. You've been listening to the Disciple Makers Podcast. The message you just heard was from Marcus D. Carvalho's track called Untangling Addiction, Stronger Through Jesus-Style Discipleship. Make sure to go online and download his free ebook called Untangling Addiction. You can find it at discipleship.org slash addiction. That's discipleship.org slash addiction. In addition to this podcast and that resource, you'll find many other great discipleship resources at discipleship.org as well. May the Lord bless you as you seek to grow as a disciple maker.